This particular book, the book of Ruth, is what's known by theologians as an independent historiographical short story. An independent historiographical short story. Uh, what this means in English is that some historians and theologians most really think that the book of Ruth has some basis in history, but that the detail around the events is probably not exactly as it was written in the Bible. Everyone agrees that there was a woman called Ruth who married somebody called Boaz, that Ruth was a Moabite and Boaz was an Israelite, and that they had a son called Obed. And the genealogy that David read to us at the end of that chapter is believed to be historical fact. But the three and a half chapters before that are likely to be a folk story, a tale that's written to convey some greater truths. If that is the case, I think that we can agree that the book of Ruth has done its job Thousands and thousands of years later, we've just spent the last four weeks preaching on this, learning from those great truths. So this morning we're going to start by looking at the genealogy, that family tree, that list of names that comes at the end of the chapter. Now I don't know about you, but often when I'm reading through the Bible and I get to a list of names like this, I just skip past it, which is precisely why we're going to look at this kind of thing this morning. Um, it might look like an irrelevant list of names. Maybe you're just thinking that the writer of the book couldn't think of a good conclusion, so decided to end it this way. But there are some important things tucked away in there. Now, the genealogy is written in such a way that people who have read a bit of the Bible will understand this and will recognize this. A was the father of B, B was the father of C, C was the father of D, and so on and so on. Now, the first thing to note here is that Biblical genealogies weren't always meant to be literal historical fact. Some are, but that often isn't the main point. Those who first heard the story of Ruth thousands of years ago would have recognized the structure of this genealogy. Actually, the fact that we skip through the genealogies and don't look at them in any detail and don't understand the importance marks us out as something that's different when we read the Bible from those who first heard the story. There are 10 generations listed in this one, and the seventh generation is important. This copies the structure of the genealogy that's first found in the Bible in Genesis 5 and later in Genesis. In Genesis 5, it tells of the 10 generations between Adam and Noah. Noah is the 10th generation, and the seventh is Enoch. Enoch was particularly important in that genealogy, because as Genesis 5 verse 24 says, he walked faithfully with God. Then he was no more, because God took him away. Like Enoch, Boaz shows us what it means to walk with God. Why was what Boaz did so important, though? Well, to get the answer to that one, we'll have to go back to Genesis again, chapter 13. In Genesis 13, Abraham and his nephew Lot leave Egypt and go to the Negev, where they gain a lot of wealth. They continue to move around, Abraham and Lot, and they gain more livestock, more people to look after the livestock, and more wealth. Eventually, they end up in a place called Bethel, where they realize that they're so rich, they have so much livestock, so many staff, that the land can't support them both living together. So they decide to separate. Abraham gives Lot the choice of which way he wants to go. Uh, Lot goes towards Jordan in the east, and so Abraham says, I'll go towards the west. They part amicably. But over the years that follow, the relationship between the two parts of the family gets worse. And eventually it leads to war between the Moabites, named after one of Lot's sons, and the Israelites, who are the descendants of Abraham. 
Now, this is the context in which we read the story of Ruth and Naomi. And it's why it's crucial to understanding the story and understanding Ruth's legacy. When Naomi's husband and sons die, she decides to head back home to Israel. Naomi was an Israelite, and she was coming home. But Ruth would be going as a Moabite, a woman from Moabite, a foreigner, the other one of the hated Moabs. This is why Naomi pleaded with Ruth three times to go back to her family. Ruth was a Moabitess. She would not be welcome. But Ruth stuck with Naomi. She did the right thing, even though it was incredibly difficult. Well, what does this list of names teach us about legacy? Verses 21 and 22 say, Salmon, the father of Boaz, Boaz, the father of Obed, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. As we read earlier, Ruth, the Moabitess, the foreigner, the outsider, has a son with Boaz. He's called Obed, and Obed goes on to be the grandfather of King David, the king who will shape the whole of Israel's identity. A man, it says in 1 Samuel, a man after God's own heart. In fact, most theologians agree this is the main reason that the book of Ruth is even included in the Old Testament canon. It was probably written around the time of King David's reign. And it's a great example of the inclusive nature of God's love. God even cares about the Moabites. Also, it's the only book in the Old Testament that's named after a non-Israelite. And it's a non-Israelite woman at that In fact, that's an interesting aside. A bit earlier in the chapter, in verse 15, where the women say that Ruth was better to Naomi than seven sons might have been, is hugely significant given the importance placed on men and sons in the Old Testament. Yeah, Ruth, a woman, a Moabite woman, was given an exalted place in Hebrew history as the great-grandmother of King David. And it doesn't stop there. Let's flick forward to Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Verse 5 says, Salmon, the son, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Verse 16, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Here's a quote. The concluding genealogy in Ruth reminds the readers that the story just told is more than an inspiring tale of a family of genuinely good people. Indeed, in looking after Ruth, Boaz not only served as the wings of Yahweh, in the immediate circumstance, but also in long-range terms, secured the identification of the Messiah with all of humanity, Jews and Gentile. Ruth's decision to leave behind the security of her homeland and to follow God into the unknown meant that she brought together two warring cultures. She reunited two tribes, and she took her place in a genealogy that would eventually lead to the Messiah. That's a legacy. 
So what does that mean uh, to us in London in 2017? I'm just going to touch on two practical things about the idea of leaving a legacy. The first of these, uh, given the timing of all of this, is to look at politics. What vote, what legacy will your vote leave? Um, in this church, we often talk about how our faith is practical, how it looks outward, how our faith should have an impact on our whole lives, because all of our decisions should be born out of a place of faith. Our decisions should be made because of our core values. We are less than a couple of weeks out from a general election. And this got me thinking, what legacy will my vote leave? What legacy will be left because of the party that I choose to vote for on June the 8th? Um, This is a picture of the central surgery in a a town called Tredegar in South Wales. It's near from where... I grew up. My great-great-grandfather was part of an organization called the Tredega Workmen's Medical Aid and Sick Relief Fund, which was set up in 1890. The premise behind this was simple. The working men in the town would pay into a pot, and out of that pot would fund all the doctors, all the healthcare in the town. It was free, universal healthcare for the entire town, paid for by some of the salary of those who were working. Young, old, sick, healthy, everyone would have universal free health care. It was the first town in the UK to do it. The central surgery here was built in 1911 out of the proceeds of this fund, which by now was called the Tredegar Medical Aid Society. My grandfather was so proud of the Tredegar Medical Aid Society. He talked about it all the time. I was brought up on these stories every single week. He talked often about how his mother the relief that she would know when she knew she could take her young baby to a doctor when he was sick without having to worry about where the money was coming from. He was so proud of this. Lots of you will know the next part of the story. A miner from that town called Anirin Bevan uh, became the trade union shop steward and after that became the local MP. In 1945, he, was, uh, he became the Minister for Health and in 1948, he took what he had learned in his hometown and he developed it into a universal free national health service. Bevan said, all I am doing is extending to the entire population of Britain the benefits that we have had in Tredega for a generation or more. We are going to Tredegarize you. What a legacy that is. What legacy will your vote leave? My grandparents would tell you that the man that they helped to elect to Parliament changed the lives of everyone in the UK who has lived since 1948. And do you know what? As those of you who know me will know, Joneses can be prone to a bit of exaggeration. But I think in this instance, they might actually be right. Speak to any American and they'll tell you what a legacy the NHS is. This um, did the rounds on Twitter a while ago. It's a a photo of a bill for somebody who um, had a baby by cesarean in the US. Uh, The total bill, you probably can't see the numbers on that, but the total bill is just over $42,000. And to think that when our kids are born, I complained about the cost of parking at St. Thomas's Hospital. <laughs> what legacy will your vote leave? Now, this is an important thing I'm going to say next. I'm not trying to tell you here who to vote for. This is important. I think that no one, no one who ever stands up here at the front of a church in a position of power like this should ever abuse that position by telling you who to vote for. 
But I once read something about a good principle which you can use to guide your vote. The article said that there is no direct biblical equivalent of voting for your local MP. So what are, what are the other equivalents? What is there in the Bible? Um, probably the closest equivalent is the Old Testament kings. Now, as many of you will know, in the Old Testament, there were good kings and there were bad kings. And this article said one of the main differences between the good kings and the bad kings is how they treated the Anawim. The Anawim is a, a Hebrew word which doesn't really have a direct equivalent or translation in English, but it means the poor, the vulnerable, the marginalized, the powerless. The good kings didn't look at their own self-interest. They didn't try to gain advantage or prestige or wealth for themselves. But they viewed caring for the poor, the powerless, those who have lost hope, those who cannot represent themselves. They viewed caring for those to be of utmost importance. Like I said, this really isn't biased towards a certain party. I'm sure that if we had candidates up here from the Labour Party, Liberal Democrats, the Conservatives, whoever, I'm absolutely sure that they would each be able to tell you why they think their party's manifesto is the best for looking after the Anawim. But I do think that if you're thinking about who you should vote for, this principle is probably quite a good one to guide us. One more thought. What legacy you leave will be based on what you do and not what you say. I love this quote from Richard Raw, who's a Catholic uh, theologian and author. How you do life is your real and final truth, not what ideas you believe. How you do life is your real and final truth, not what ideas you believe. Or as a comedian, I once heard puts it, many are willing to suffer for their art, few are willing to learn to draw. Ruth and Boaz lived lives worthy of leaving a legacy. The verse I mentioned earlier from Ruth chapter 1, where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. That, that isn't why we study the book of Ruth. We study it because she acted on that, because she followed that up, because they weren't empty words. I think this is important because when we look at leaving a legacy, we can sometimes get caught up, can't we, in, in these huge stories of these huge people who changed the world. When we think about legacy, the temptation is to look at someone like Martin Luther King or, or Nelson Mandela or, or even you know, on a, a smaller, more local level to us, even someone like Steve who's going to leave Oasis, leave this legacy of this great charity. And I think that often we can get caught up in thinking that the only thing that counts is if we leave a legacy like that, a huge thing. But I think what legacy do you want to leave is a question that every single one of us needs to answer. How you live your life day by day, the decisions you make, impacts the legacy that you will leave. What legacy do you want to leave? Do you want to be remembered as that guy who had that job that paid really well? The guy who earned more than his mates from university? Do you want to be remembered as that that woman who always wished she could do a bit more, but she couldn't really because, you know, she, she had to go into work a bit earlier and, and leave a bit late because she, she had to get that promotion because she had to pay off the lease on the car so that you know, so when the car was paid off, they could then go and buy a bigger flat. Or do you want people to say, she always had time for me. He was so generous. She could have done anything, but she chose to spend her time fighting for justice.
His front door was always open. She loved her kids. He was always there for his friends' kids. You could always call her in a crisis and you just knew she would help you out. He didn't have a lot, but he always invited his friends around for a meal. She was kind. That's it. If I had to sum her up, I would just say, she was kind. What legacy do you want to leave? I'm going to end by telling one more story. It's about a guy called Martin Morton Kelsey, who was born in the early 20th century in Pennsylvania in the USA. His, uh, his parents didn't want him. He was a, a breech birth. And so they, they gave him up to a 14-year-old girl called Clara. Morton was white. Clara was black. And in the deep south in the early 20th century, you can imagine how well that went down. Clara raised Morton for the first three years of his life. She loved him. She cared for him. She sang him to sleep. She looked out for his every single need. But after three years, Morton was taken away from her and put into a children's home. He bounced around through children's homes for the whole of his childhood. Had a terrible childhood. No one looking out for him. No one caring for him. No one loving loving him. And when he got to... 18 or 19, rejected by everyone that he'd always known. He took some pills and he took them out to a desert in California where he was living. And he lay down under the stars and he went to take the pills to end his life. But he says while he was lying there, looking up at the stars, he felt this wave of something coming over him that he could only describe as God. And he experienced it, he said, as a melody. A melody came to him out of nowhere. And this melody was strong enough that he put the pills back in his pocket. He got up. He walked out of the desert. He sought help. And he never tried it again. Morton Kelsey went on to become a theologian, an author. He wrote a load of books that that were read by hundreds of thousands of people and and changed people's lives. He became a professor at the University of Notre Dame, uh, quite a revered one, and when he was 77, he retired from this. The university did a a, a big thing, Um, and there was an article in the local paper about this fantastic theologian, this fantastic author who had committed his entire life to the university. And there was a woman in a nursing home who was 91 years old. And she read this article in the local paper. And she wrote him a letter. And she said, are you the Morton Kelsey who was born in Pennsylvania? He didn't remember Clara. He was three when he was taken away from her. But he met up with her. She had some old, faded photos. And for the first time in his life, he realized that there was someone who was looking out for him when he was a child. That his childhood wasn't the absolute write-off that he thought it was. And then just as they were about to part, she said, every night before you used to go to bed, I used to sing you this song. And Clara, 91 years old, 
sang a lullaby to a 77-year-old Morton Kelsey, and he realized that that song that she sang him was the melody that he had heard in the desert 60 years earlier. The melody that had saved his life was a memory of Clara's song. I first heard this story um, a few years ago when listening to a, a singer-songwriter called Martin Joseph. Um, he wrote a song about it, and, and he says it's a beautiful story of how redemptive love can take 77 years to come home. What a legacy. We're going to end this morning by listening to, um, to that song. And while we do so, I just encourage you to think, what legacy do I want to leave? And then think, what legacy am I leaving at the moment? And what's the discrepancy? What's the difference between the two? What legacy do I want to leave? And what do I need to do to get to there? Martin Joseph, when talking about when Clara and Morton first met, wrote these lyrics, the coming home is a blessed reunion, hands on his face, it is you. They talk all day of a lost childhood of which he will now change his view. Before they part, she sings gently to him, but he knows he's heard it before. It wasn't the breeze or the moon across those mountains, it was Clara's love call. I hope we all have a Clara, singing songs unknown, songs for the healing, and songs for the coming home. I hope we all have a Clara, but today I hope that we can be a Clara. I hope that we can be the people who metaphorically sing the unknown songs that save a life, whatever that means in our context. What legacy do you want to leave?